What does it take to get the attention of the world when it comes to understanding the dangers of radioactive water from Fukushima? Not only the 1.3 million tons of tritium-contaminated water in tanks that the Japanese government is promising to release into the Pacific Ocean over the objections of other nations and its own citizens, but the radioactive water that has been continuously released from Fukushima since the 2011 disaster began. While Japan continues to pretend that all is well, and they continue to sanitize the image of nuclear and Fukushima in order to be able to restart its reactors and build some new ones, sometimes it takes a lone filmmaker to nail the real story of what's been going on for years. And he tells you, They are lying, they are lying, they are lying, and they are lying. The groundwater is still leaking since 2011, and nothing has been done about it. Thousands and thousands and thousands of gallons of water getting into the ocean. And this is very, very highly radioactive water because it goes through the melted core. I mean, you cannot have more radiation than that. So they are lying. Well, when filmmaker Philippe Carrillo offers not only his opinion, but conclusions based on years of research and expert interviews that he's compressed into a dynamite new 52-minute film, you get yet another angle of understanding on that terrible, dangerous seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with filmmaker Philippe Carrillo, whose new film, Fukushima Disaster, The Hidden Side of the Story, is the antidote to Oliver Stone. It has clear information on not only the Fukushima disaster, but what's wrong with nuclear reactor technology and, through animation, the best explanation of radiation's impact on human cells and DNA that I have encountered. We will also have nuclear news from around the world. Linda Pence-Gunter with the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, Numbnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than any Writers Guild of America member is going to be writing about until the current strike is over. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in the U.S., where it's been a bad week for Ohio, the Davis-Bessey nuclear plant, only 30 miles east of Toledo, has become the subject of a special inspection again, this time because the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission said it found evidence of excessive ground settling. Ground settling had been blamed for an October 2022 event, which broke a pipeline used as a main source of firewater. 
Upon further investigation, the NRC found an undetermined number of other parts of the plant, revealing evidence of excessive settling. While an NRC spokesperson is quoted as saying, a certain extent of ground settling is normal, Arnie Gunderson, chief engineer and board member of Fairwinds Energy Education, contends there has also been excessive settling at the Vogel Nuclear Plant Complex in Georgia and at the Waterford Nuclear Plant Complex in Louisiana, saying... The weight of the foundation of a nuclear plant is huge, which compacts the ground under it. Over time, the nuclear plant begins to sink. And in Piketon, Ohio, residents plead to stop demolition of uranium-tainted buildings. While the Department of Energy uses such words as remediation, decommission, and deactivation to describe what they are doing at a facility that was used to enrich uranium for nuclear bombs during the Cold War, Piketon residents say the DOE is actively poisoning them. That's because they are conducting open-air demolition of buildings tainted with enriched uranium, plutonium, and other radioactive material. According to Vina Colley, president of the Portsmouth Piketon Residents for Environmental Safety, or PRESS, other similar facilities received a negative pressure tent and enclosed demolition. Those in charge of the Piketon Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant, or PORTS, are, quote, charging recklessly ahead with an open-air demolition of the Piketon plant, where plutonium has been proven to pass through since 1955. Chemistry professor and researcher Dr. Michael Ketterer, whose work led to the discovery in 2019 of the presence of enriched uranium and other radioactive material at Zahn's Corner Middle School, about four miles northeast of Ports, sparking outrage in the community and closing the school. Ketterer said that while the poisoning of Piketon has been happening for decades, it has been exacerbated by the open-air demolitions. Those expressing concern about the demolition of the site have also expressed dismay that the national spotlight has been shined on East Palatine, Ohio, the site of the recent toxic train derailment, while Piketon continues to be poisoned with impunity, with Kali saying, this community was sacrificed for the Cold War, and we're still being sacrificed. We'll link to the full article. And now, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that sound awake. Oh, poor widow nuclear waste. It's so misunderstood. At least that's the headline and the premise behind the wrong-headed, snide, manipulative op-ed that appeared in this week's New York Times under the title nuclear waste is misunderstood. It's a sly, psychologically honed put-down of all logical concerns against nuclear waste, treating those who oppose it as some kind of wrong-headed children who suggest go away and play with other toys. The author, Madison Hilly, is listed as founder of the campaign for a, pardon me while I choke, nuclear green deal, a contradiction in terms if ever there was one. She's just another paid chill for the nuclear industry. After bragging about her so-called research with, quote, engineers, radiation specialists, and waste managers, without saying that all of them were paid for and employed by the nuclear industry and thus self-serving in their answers, she goes on to make one of the most boneheaded of statements. And here I quote, There are many legitimate questions about the future of nuclear. How will we finance new plants. Can we build them on time and under budget? But what about the waste should not be one of them. WTF? 
her twisting of the facts, linguistic contortions, and smug, I've got the money and the support of those who oppose nuclear don't have enough to contradict me attitude, is nauseating at best, and at worst, dangerous. Here is our national newspaper of record espousing what is essentially a well-crafted set of lies without vetting any of her statements. I cannot believe that the New York Times fell for or caved under the nuclear industry's full-court press. But this timing is no accident. This editorial, in tandem with Oliver Tutututu Stone's movie, which is just a World Economic Forum promo using their nuclear financial talking points, are meant to ram small modular nuclear reactors down our throats. Mind you, this is a technology that is unproven, unbuilt, not a single unit in existence anywhere in the world, but already a billion-dollar cash cow for the industry. Think how that money could be used for genuine, safe, renewable energy generation that already exists, like solar, wind, geothermal, tidal, and more. But those technologies will not line the pockets of already millionaire and billionaire nuclear industry honchos. So let's give a nuclear shill over 1,000 words in the New York Times, an enormous length in today's newspaper world, to slime the genuine science-based objections of honest, footnoted scientists, engineers, and informed activists, manipulate perception of a dangerous industry, and take us one more step into public-approved nuclear insanity. And that's why not only Hilly the Shill, Shilly Hilly, but the New York Times. You are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's of the week. We will also link to the article, No, Nuclear Power Isn't the Big Bazooka Climate Fix You Might Think, by Paul Hakenos for CNN.com. In Japan... Authorities have expressed doubt over the removal of radioactive sandbags at the Fukushima nuclear plant as the plant operator aims to start the recycling procedure this fiscal year. Japan's Nuclear Regulatory Authority said the recycling approach needs to be fully verified, adding that it was unclear whether the procedure could be carried out as expected. The zeolite-packed sandbags were put on the basement floors of the factory building as an emergency measure to lower radiation levels of contaminated water after the 2011 nuclear disaster. But the sandbags still emit radiation levels of up to 4.4 sieverts per hour, enough to kill people exposed to the high reading in just two hours. But that admitted unsolved danger has not stopped the government of Japan from pretending that Fukushima is now safe for re-entry. They have lifted the evacuation orders for Itate Village in Fukushima for about 17% of the district. The area has been named a special zone for reconstruction and revitalization, even though 83% of the district is still under evacuation orders. It's not safe, but the bureaucrats want it to look so and thus are in the middle of a busy rebranding season. Survivors of Japan's nuclear disaster are being labeled as having mental illness, a pretty damning and retro term for post-traumatic stress disorder for victims of not only the initial disaster and radiation releases, but the following financial stress due to isolation and the inability to move out of their homes. This article diminished the pain being felt by survivors by claiming the PTSD is due to, quote, 
anxieties about compensation and indemnification, unemployment, and nuisances just by being an evacuee. They left out references to radiation and ignored the emotional aspects of trauma, which gets biochemically encoded into the body and can show up in a wide range of altered behaviors. In March of 2022, Japan's Supreme Court ruled that TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company, should pay 1.4 billion yen, the equivalent of 12 million U.S. dollars, in damages to about 3,700 residents whose lives were upended by the nuclear disaster. Sounds good until you do the math and discover that each person would get approximately $3,243. That's it. And now here's Linda Pence-Gunter with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. You have probably heard the term recycling offered up as a solution to the question of what to do with the nuclear waste produced by commercial nuclear power plants. Recycling, in fact, refers to reprocessing. It's an industry term designed to disguise what reprocessing is really all about. Reprocessing is a chemical separation of the uranium and plutonium in irradiated reactor fuel. One of the few places this is done is at the sprawling French reprocessing site at La Hague on the Normandy coast. While reprocessing reduces the radioactive content of the waste, it ends up making volumetrically even more waste. Much of this excess, misleadingly termed low and intermediate level, is discharged from La Hague as gases and liquids into the air and into the English Channel. Some of that radioactive contamination has been detected as far as the Arctic. The liquid discharges have at times been classified as radioactive waste, forcing the closure of beaches and a ban on fishing. If the waste was dumped from Laag in canisters, it would violate ocean dumping treaties. Because it is discharged as liquid through a pipe, Laag gets away with it. The surplus separated plutonium, now 80 plus tons of it, is also stockpiled at Laag. Does any of this sound like recycling to you? This recycling myth has now been busted even further by Laag's latest problem. All of its waste fuel storage pools are full. The solution, says EDF, the French government-owned company responsible for the already troubled reactor fleet, is to build a new fifth storage pool at Laag. This has some of the locals up in, well, hooves. The area around Laag is home to a renowned herd of wild goats known as Jobourg Fossé, survivors of earlier domesticity and a self-described group of experienced fighters, tenacious spirits and hard-headed activists. How self-described? Because a new activist group of humans this time called Piscine Nucléaire Stop which translates as stop the nuclear fuel pool, has craftily recruited the goats to their cause. The group carved a series of cutout goats and placed them around the town of Jobourg, which abuts the Lag site and after whom the famous goats are named. Then the goats released a statement. We, Nanny and Billy Goats of Jobourg, claim our right to decide the fate of our land and affirm today our opposition to the EDF spent fuel storage pool project, the statement began. They named as one of their concerns, quote, the quality of the grass, essential to our health, but also a symbol of our ancestral and even constitutional and therefore inviolable right to graze in peace. They ended, wittily, with, we refuse to be the scapegoats of this garbage operation. In France, civil disobedience and defiance of authority is in the national DNA. We've seen it recently with the demonstrations against raising the retirement age, 
and before that, the yellow vests. During World War II, there was the Résistance. Further back, of course, came the Revolution of 1789. The French anti-nuclear movement follows in this long tradition, colorful, creative, and committed, and usually helped by a lot of useful tractors as well. We will be seeing more from the people of Piscine Nuclear Stop, and probably from the goats of Jobourg as well. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat, and that's this week's hot story. Thank you, Linda. Regarding Ukraine, the UK has announced that its military assistance to that country may include depleted uranium tank shells that can be used by the Challenger tanks that London has already promised to Kyiv. Evidence has been mounting since the 1991 Gulf War that depleted uranium ammunition used by U.S. forces and their allies in that war causes cancer and birth defects. But now the same Western media that helped expose the risks is downplaying them as Ukraine is set to receive DU weapons. In essence, this is a move that would make the war in Ukraine a nuclear war, though without the big bomb explosions, just the delivery on the ground of massive amounts of the equivalent of radioactive fallout. Tank shells made with depleted uranium, called DU, are also referred to within the military as radioactive bullets, a byproduct of uranium enrichment. When housed in small torpedo-like munitions, DU can pierce thickly armored tanks and other vehicles. If used by Ukraine in this war, the country will be contaminating itself and could spark a global health crisis. Linking to several articles which back this up, and we're working on an interview to illuminate this further. And finally, Ukraine's Energoatom and Holtec International have signed a cooperation agreement to build up to 20 small modular nuclear reactors in Ukraine. It's like they just never learn. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, two weeks and counting until I will be leaving to attend the International Uranium Film Festival in Rio de Janeiro. From May 18 to 28, I will be watching and reviewing 16 of the year's best films about a wide range of nuclear issues. I'll be interviewing filmmakers for future episodes and networking to help strengthen connections between the show and activist filmmakers from around the world. Listen, this is not some let's-kick-back-and-sun-on-the-beach vacation. I will be going full bore in a darkened theater for the entire 10 days of the festival to give you a front-row seat to cutting-edge films that reveal the ugly truths about what's going on all around our nuclearized world. I'm fortunate that the airfare has been made possible by the 2022 Nuclear Free Future Award for Education, which I won. However... I still need help covering the rest of my expenses, housing, meals, ground transportation, and back home, dog care for Munchkin. Yes, that is a business expense. There's no money available in the nuclear hot seat budget. To be honest, current donations don't always cover the monthly expenses and have to come out of pocket. And I don't really have a pocket. So I'm asking for your help. If you can donate to help me stay fed and housed at the festival... Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the red Donate button. Your donation is tax-deductible, and as a bonus, if you donate $100 or more, we can set up a 30-minute one-on-one or group conversation on any aspect of the nuclear industry, the show, or activism that you like. A private networking session tailor-made for you. So, donate now, whatever you can. 
Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the red Donate button, and know that whatever you can do to help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now, here's this week's featured interview. Philippe Carrillo is a French citizen and filmmaker currently living in the Vanuatu archipelago in the South Pacific Ocean. While living in Paris, he worked on several major documentary projects for the BBC, 20th Century Fox, and French National TV. He moved to Hollywood in 2003 and made his first feature documentary in Hollywood in 2013, Inside the Garbage Patch of the World, an in-depth look at the plastic pollution posing a serious threat to our oceans. The film won three awards, was distributed worldwide, and inspired a wave of change regarding plastic pollution. Philippe moved to Vanuatu in 2017 and has since made more than 100 short films in that country. In 2022, he decided to finish his feature documentary about Fukushima, which was started in 2016. That film, Fukushima Disaster, The Hidden Side of the Story, is a fast-moving, 52-minute blast of truth about nuclear cover-ups and lies. It busts the carefully cultivated myths of nuclear reactor safety in a way that is clear, easily understood, and devastatingly powerful. It also contains animation that presents the single best explanation of radiation that I've seen. I spoke with Philippe Carrillo on Friday, April 14, 2023. Philippe Carrillo, thank you so much for joining us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. No, you're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate that. What made you decide to do a film about Fukushima? When you know something that is really not good, or you feel the need to uh, make others aware of it, get a little bit lazy. So I didn't want to talk too much about it. I guess, you know, if uh, I don't have to repeat myself, no, it's better to watch a film because there is elements that make something very interesting and in the same time emotional. You know, I cannot come every time with a symphonic orchestra and then just make sure, you know. <laughs> so with the music and everything, it makes the matter, you know, important and that makes it emotional. I watched the film again today. That's my second time watching it. And at the end, I was in tears. I was choked up several times through. The emotion of it really did come through. So that was very powerful. How did you go about starting the film? When did you start it? And what was the beginning of your compiling of the information? I made contact with this journalist, Yoshi Shimatsu, who is a former Japan Times magazine and newspaper in Japan. She is not working at Japan Time because chief editor had been assassinated. And did he see that as putting himself in danger? Yeah. He and his editor, they were involved in exposing, you know, the truth about Japan, especially during the subway poisoning. And I think after this story, his editor had been assassinated and he felt like he could not stay there anymore because something can happen to him. I made contact with him and then he had a lot of insights that I really didn't know about. Ultimately, we ended up going to Japan. We went to Sendai and then we were like 10 kilometers away from the Fukushima nuclear plant. We could not go there because it was a non-exclusion zone. Yeah, it was a 10-kilometer exclusion zone, so we cannot get there. Even in 2014, because you know the radiation was so high anyway. 
I wasn't sure what I'm going to do with that information because I wanted to do a film about it, but I really didn't know where to start and how to start. After him, I started to make contact with others related to the matter, such as Helen Caldicott, Randy Milky. Finally, I did the whole tour. I thought I can cover the whole matter in one film. So I went to uh, Canada to check it out. Why was dying of species, the ocean species were dying off the coast of Canada, British Columbia. So I went there, interviewed some people. After that, I went to uh, Seattle, interview some other people, and then go to Hawaii to interview Yumi. And then after that, I went to Majuro, which was another very interesting thing. It's, you know, the, the bomb test drama and trauma actually that is left after all those years. And to this day, what is very funny is to this day, it's not the Department of Health that is checking the level of radiation of the locals over there. It's the Department of Energy, which means that they are still monitoring people to see the effect of the radiation over there. That's from the explosions that were done when the bomb testing was being done in the South Pacific, correct? Yes. And I interview, I managed to interview an old lady who was there during the Bravo test. The Bravo test was the, the most powerful test ever. It was a hydrogen bomb. These people were at Rondelap Island, and they said to them, oh, no, it's okay, the wind uh, will go somewhere else. But actually, the wind went exactly where they were living. And they knew it. She explained to me, everybody else is dead. She was the only survivor, and the reason why is because she stayed inside. Her brother got outside and he died of radiation. He was playing with the snow, the white snow. I never saw that. It was just the fallout. So then I went to Guam, Thailand, and then I hit uh, Chernobyl. And Chernobyl was also very interesting. And I interviewed the last liquidator. When you say the last liquidator, this is the last one who's still alive? Yes. I was lucky to interview him. This is amazing, Libby, because... After the whole tour, what became very obvious is I wanted to call the film You Are the Experiment. There is nowhere to hide. You are the experiment. Yes, the live experiment about nuclear radiation, about everything nuclear. Mm -hmm. And I found out that uh, this thing comes back all the time. They are using people as an experiment. What happened in Japan as well? Why they didn't tell People, you know, uh, where the radiation was is because they wanted to see what happened to people after being irradiated with all this new radionuclide. There's a bunch of them that we didn't even know about, you know. I felt that I have a responsibility to uh, do a film about it and to uh, expose what is going on because people don't know anything about it. And what they know is so distorted because of the amount of propaganda and news manipulation that's done by the nuclear industry. There is a lot of money spent, you know, in PR agency to cover up all this stuff. For the film, you interviewed several well-known experts, including Dr. Helen Caldicott, Arnie Gunderson, and Maggie Gunderson, as well as several others that I'd not yet encountered, but I was glad to through the film. One of these, who you've already mentioned, was former Japan Times journalist Yoichi Shimatsu. What I loved about what he shared was that he was angry, he was righteous, he let it show, he did not mince his words, and to my taste, his response was absolutely appropriate because too often when we deal with 
the nuclear industry or the nuclear atrocities that have been committed, we're very polite about it. And he was not polite. He was very strong. How did you find him? And what was it like when you were working with him? I did a search on the internet and uh, his name shows up. What I like about uh, people who are working for an entity and after that they left is because they have now information that they will be willing to share. It's not always the case. Sometimes, you know, you interview a professor. It happened to me actually in Seattle and they said to me, we cannot talk. I can give you only a part of the information because I'm still a professor at the university. But she was out and then she could tell me everything. And then working with him was, uh, oof, he has so much information. And uh, at some point I was like, okay, it's too much. I cannot even tell the story, not even half of what he said to me. I could not say it. It's too much. It's too much for people because they are so far away from the truth. Then you become like, oh yeah, you are a conspiracy theorist because of all the stuff that he said to me. But it's actually true. He showed me uh, sites in Japan that only if you are Japanese and uh, well-informed, you will know where to find, where to search. It was going into the rabbit hole. How did you winnow down the amount of information you have to this very tight 52-minute film that really does a tremendously comprehensive job of not only explaining Fukushima, but explaining the entire nuclear dilemma that we find ourselves in with reactors and waste and exposure to radioactivity? When you cut an interview, you have to remove what is not essential, what is not crucial. All the information were important, but some of them, they were a little bit too far away from the reality of the people. So I decide to take what people can ingest. If it's too much, they're going to just drop them. So I have to be careful and just take a little piece by little piece and then add it in a way where it becomes a little bit more real for people that this nuclear industry is actually full of crap. And it has to be said by the right people, you see. I have other people, but they didn't have the title. I eliminate them. I remove them from the film because they didn't have the credentials. Mm -hmm. But one is uh, Helen Caldicott. Can you say, well, you know, a conspiracy theory from Helen? Come on. She's a Nobel Prize, right? So that's how I decided to cut pieces and parts. And Annie is a nuclear engineer. So I tried to make the story like as more as possible. I wanted to add some of the parts in a movie that was a radiation reading that we did when we went to Tokyo. And I removed this part. It was too much. The thing about radiation is that you explain it in the film better than I have seen explained in any other piece of media that's out there. You used voiceover, you used animation, but you really got into what radiation does to the cell in a way that completed a picture for me. How did you go about developing this information and how did you decide on the points of it you wanted to cover? I wanted to break the misunderstanding of radiation. The confusion has been set up by the industry for a long time and for a good reason. You know, they don't want people to get into that. They don't want people to understand and be able to say, well, you are not right. They want people to be like, or oh, only the experts have the right to touch this topic. And I found out that it was very, very hard, even for me. So I get the help of Randy Milky and then Maggie and then Arnie. 
I write something myself, and then after that I ask them to correct it, and they corrected it, and then it was still, you know, a little bit too complicated. So I have to change the words. And then when we did the voiceover, the voiceover guy said too complicated. It's very important for me that people understand what we are talking about. So let's just simplify some words. So what we did, we just simplified the thing, you know, a little bit more, and it ended up being like this. For education purpose, I believe that all the kids, even at school, you know, they can understand what's going on with radiation. That was a major point because if you want to handle something, you have to understand it. If you want to fight, take it and change it, then you have to understand it. Otherwise, you're going to fail because you're going to abandon the subject if there is something you don't understand about. You have to go through the understanding of all the parts in order to get to your goal and to finish your project. It was very well done. In the film, you bring up something called the Keisha Club. One of your interviewees spoke about it, and it was referenced as an important factor in Japan's cover-up of what was really happening at Fukushima. Tell us more about the Keisha Club and the culture behind it. The Keisha Club system is embedded journalism which means like every big company, they have this way of not letting any data getting out without being filtered. So basically, they see anything that needs to be out in the public because of an accident or just because they want to communicate on something. And this club is making sure that only the good news get out to the world. So they're going to eliminate a lot of things and then just filter the thing until, you know, it's like, oh, it's like a nice news and everybody's happy and blah, blah. This is very the culture of Japan, by the way. They are really like this. They don't want to make waves of problems or anything. So everything has to be in, like, it looks better, you know. And it's unfortunate because it's not the raw news. It's not raw. It's edited, edited news. That's like the World Nuclear Association has world nuclear news that they put out every week. And it's a compendium of articles, all of which just say the most wonderful things about nuclear. Never has heard a discouraging word. These are articles that are picked up by newspapers that don't have the funds to do their own stories and their own research. And that is one of the ways that they consistently get out their perspective. And it's not one or two. They will have like 20 stories a week going out, any one of which is prepared in a way that's appropriate for print. But it's not that they're necessarily telling the truth or the whole truth or the difficult truth. That's what they avoid. And that's why the conversation has been so skewed in the media to supporting nukes and not hearing the alternative perspective. Because against all their millions and all their staff and the work that they are doing, we've got a couple of podcasts, a couple of cable programs, and that's about it. So moving on from the Keisha Club, there's one aspect that is taken as truth. And that is that there is no way to clean up radioactive contamination from the water. And we're facing this with the 1.3 plus million tons of radioactive water, tritium contaminated, that Japan is planning to release into the Pacific Ocean. You had a former NASA nuclear scientist in your film, Randy Milkey, saying that he has developed something called the bio-optimized bioremediation system. He refers to it as the Bob system using biofilms, and that this is something that could 
clean up the radioactivity at Fukushima and beyond. How did you discover him? How did you discover his work? And why do you think his claims are credible enough to be included in your film? I met him during the production of the plastic. Uh, he was working with a researcher, a scientist, and then I interviewed this scientist. So that's why uh, the connection. He uh, explained to me the whole process. He was the only one at, at the time you know, that I knew that had a solution for the nuclear radiation to be cleaned up. So that's why I follow him and then he gave me an interview and then he explained to me exactly how his system was working. And plus, he was actually dealing already with TEPCO to uh, propose a solution. And TEPCO was very interested. And then, uh, like he said in the film, you know, at some point, you know, they have a leak at the, at the, at the plant and they lost all their water. So there was no need anymore to clean the water. And that was it. But I think there is more to the story than that. We originally spoke when I interviewed you about the film for a Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network event. And during that time, when we were chatting, I think before we actually went live with it, you mentioned that there was a relationship between Fukushima and the current extent of the Arctic ice melt. What do you see as that connection? We are talking about climate change, the Arctic is melting, blah, 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 and this push marketing push about climate change. So I asked Randy, I said, Randy, is it possible that any isotope, radioactive isotope, if they sit on the bed of the Arctic, they can create this melting of the ice? And he said to me, yes. I said to him, why nobody went there to see if there is any isotope, radioactive isotope, are creating this melting of the ice and not like the climate change, what they are saying all over the place. He said to me, well, you know, you have to have a special authorization if you're going to go there, and then it's going to cost a lot of money. And so nobody did the research. He said, no. And then talking to Yochi, and then I heard them say, I said, Yochi, what about climate change and uh, related to Fukushima? And he said to me, well, I talked to 70 scientists, and they said to me, yeah, the reason why the bad uh, sheet of the ice over there in Antarctica, you know, is actually melting is because of the isotope fallout from Fukushima. I was like, ah. Oh. Finally, somebody says something about it, but he went, uh, you know, not public because there is so much about, you know, no, 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 this is not the right thing because it's, it's not in our marketing plan. You cannot say that, you know, Fukushima is have an effect on the climate change because it is not in the book. I'm sorry. You see what I'm saying, uh, Libby? Is this the type of influence that the Keisha Club would have on stories getting out? I don't think so because this is outside of Japan. I think the Kisha Club system is more like they're going to hide everything that TEPCO is doing. They're going to hide that they have been dumping the water already and they are just playing with us right now saying, yeah, well, you know what? We want the authorization to dump the water. They have been doing that already. They are lying. They are lying. They are lying. And they are lying. Why they will not lie anymore if they were caught lying already for a long time? So you see the problem, you know, the groundwater is still leaking since 2011 and nothing has been done about it. Thousands and thousands and thousands of gallons of water getting into the ocean. And this is very, very highly radioactive water because it goes through the melted core. I mean, you cannot have more radiation than that. So they are lying. They are lying. And the reason why they try to lie to the Pacific Island nation right now is because it costs less money than trying to find a solution for the radioactive water over there. It costs less, much, much less money to try to uh, brainwash everybody in the Pacific 
And this is what they are doing. And they're paying a lot of money too. You also spoke about the way money is being spent, Japanese money is being spent in the South Pacific Island nations and how that is influencing their ability to fight back or have their voices heard. What was it that you have seen? Because you're living in a South Pacific Island nation, Vanuatu. What do you see as being the influence of Japanese money on this fight to not let the radioactive water be released? Japan is giving a lot of money to fund a lot of projects here in Vanuatu, but not only in Vanuatu, but also in uh, different uh, Pacific Island nations, Salomon Island, Fiji, whatever. This is the dilemma I have with some of the ministers. The, the, the same one who were saying one year before that it's not okay for Japan to dump their radioactive into the ocean. Now the government changed they are on the government side before they were on the opposition side. And then now they are not saying anything anymore loud and clear to Japan saying, hey, you back off, you stop that. So now the reason why is because they receive a lot of money from Japan. And Japan is like, hey, we're going to fund the hospital. We're going to fund the sensor for the earthquake all over the Vanuatu archipelago. They are funding a, a tsunami warning system since a long time. So then now, where are these people who were so vocal one year ago? I even invite them to be in the film. No answer. I did a, a screening of the film two days ago and invite all the journalists. Nobody came. And this is in Vanuatu? This is in Vanuatu. Only one came because he was already in, in touch with me. But the one from the TV station, nobody came. Nobody cares. You know why? It's because Japan, they did the workshop with them already, giving them all the data. And I think they have the data now. They don't understand nothing. These people don't understand anything, Libby. They don't understand what is happening in their own country. And they will be okay to just say nothing because they have been briefed by the, the Japanese government. They have been lied to by the Japanese government. And they are okay with that. And when you come with the truth, and the scientific evidence on paper about, you know, the University of Seattle, the University of Hawaii, with all the scientists saying no to Japan because this is not okay. So then, no, nothing. So we, we are facing like a weird situation where I will have to finally show the film to everybody to create something here because the journalists, they are not doing that job. That's the same problem we have in any community that does have a nuclear reactor, that the company in charge pays for playgrounds or community centers or little events. And everybody goes, oh, wow, is that wonderful? Look at what they're doing for us, not seeing what they're doing to them with the technology that they placed in their own backyards. Exactly. I agree. So this is really a shame. When are people going to wake up? This is crazy. I try to wake people up with my film and I hope people are going to uh, just do something about it because when you see the film, suddenly you become aware. You are like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe something is wrong here, you know. That's why I do film. Otherwise, I will not do film. If, if my film doesn't create any effect, counter effect of the nuclear power, then why am I doing film? I just go to a remote island and I go fishing and that's it, you know. Well, <laughs> we're not going to let you go fishing yet. Maybe between screening because... <laughs> What we're up against now is that Oliver Stone, you should pardon the expression, 
has a film that's coming out. I believe it hits as of May 1st. That's going to be completely positive, pro-nuclear, rah-rah, and pay no attention to those rabid activists. All they're doing is being alarmists. And nuclear is really the way out of the climate crisis when indeed, as we've addressed so many times on Nuclear Hot Seat, the ways that it is not. It does seem that with the timing of your film, it is the antidote to Oliver Stone and his upcoming film. So the question now is, how are you planning to distribute the film? Is there distribution in place? Are you open to being contacted by groups or universities to sponsor screenings of it? What is going on now to get your film, Fukushima Disaster, The Hidden Side of the Story, out into the world? The film is in contract with the distributor in UK already. They are supposed to do the, 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 the work. However, they don't have outlet to show the film. So what they have, they have a big network of uh, television that works with them. So basically television, they buy film from them and depending on the topic and stuff like that. So I believe that the film is going to take a little bit of time, you know, to get rolling because the topic is not completely in the present of everybody yet, but is going to be thanks to Oliver Stone, you know. I like the guy. I mean, I, don't know. I like the talent. But this time, uh, he had been brainwashed by the WEF, World Economic Forum. They are the one behind pushing different topics in a different direction. Not too much to save the world, but to take advantage of the situation when everybody is going to go down. If you listen to what they are saying, this entity is no good. It is no good for the democracy. There is nothing democratic about WEF, nothing. And this nuclear thing, I'm sorry, but when you see who is the producer, the guy, the person bringing the money is a woman, the executive producer, and she is linked, well linked to the World Economic Forum. And the reason why it changed, because it wasn't like this 10 years ago, is because of the war in Ukraine. So now we are about, again, to brainwash everybody that nuclear is fine. Because now there is a need of nuclear weapons. As I said to you, the basic lie about nuclear power is that nuclear power plants are made to make electricity. That's a lie. The truth about it is the primary reason we have nuclear plants is to build nuclear bombs. And that's why it's still there because of national security. Because one country will say, well, I need to have at least nuclear bomb like this. The neighbor is not going to attack me, blah, 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 blah. So that's the main reason. And if people understand that, that we have nuclear plants because of nuclear bombs, then we are not going anywhere. That's right, because plutonium is part of the waste stream of every nuclear reactor. It's created in the so-called spent fuel rods. Really, they're not spent. They've still got a lot in them. And what they've got is plutonium, which can very easily be turned into weapons-grade plutonium. And the United States, initially, with the Atoms for Peace program, they were looking at what they were paying to have nuclear reactors that created the plutonium for them. And they went, well, we don't want to be paying this. Let's make it into a utility and let's use the heat to boil water 
to make steam, to make electricity, and pretend that this is all for a power source and it's good for people and it would be too cheap to meter, as opposed to we're really doing this so that in the waste stream, we've got all the plutonium we could ever want, need, or use to blow this planet up multiple times over. Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. You did a tremendous amount of research and interviewing with individuals for the film. And there's, of course, much more footage than could possibly be used in the film because you only use small snippets that you distilled down to real essence things. And you have very generously posted raw interviews, your raw material on your website, ExposureFilmsTrust.com. And I will have a link up on the website with this episode. And they include the full interviews. And that means with Helen Caldicott, Arnie Gunderson, Maggie Gunderson, and many others. What is your thinking about how this footage might or can be used? And if people wish to use it, do they need your permission or can they just go grab and run it? At this point, I don't know what is the better good. Of course, everybody needs money, but frankly, at this point, you know, it's like, okay, take the data and then do something with it. That's it. Yeah, I made the film. The film is going to generate, hopefully, money stream a little bit like this. I can, you know, maybe go into the next film. I still have many films to do. I'm not done yet. But in the same time, um, this is my dilemma a little, bit, a little bit. It's like, if I give the film for free, it's not going very far. Yeah, it might go, you know, but... But when, when the film, you have to pay for it, then it, it has the best interest because somebody makes money in between, which is a distributor. And then the film goes much, much farther. But in the same time, I still want people to get the data if they don't have the money to pay. I, mean, you know, I made it for people to have more information and use this information. So if they want it, they can just do it. But if they are going to make money with it, so let me know. Like this, maybe we can find an arrangement or something. But if it's just to uh, share the world and um, help the people to know about what's going on, then they can have it for free. I do know that I have some dedicated listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat who are always hungry for the deep dive into any information, especially any new information that might be forthcoming. And I know that they will be very excited about this link and will be watching them. I know I will be watching them as well. Is there any final thought of something that we have not mentioned about the film or that you would like people to know about the film? It's a lot of work to do a film, maybe. I've been working a lot, believing that information being out can make a change. And that's the main reason why I do that. I didn't do that for money. One way or another, this information needs to go out. Hopefully, it will support me because there is so much more to do. Related to Fukushima, I think that's it. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. Now there is Chernobyl, there is Marshall Island and all the bomb tests, and there is Manhattan Project. You have done a tremendous job in putting together your film, Fukushima Disaster, The Hidden Side of the Story. You have done an important piece of work that can be a cornerstone into cracking people's consciousness open. The trick being to get them to sit down for 52 minutes to watch the thing. Hopefully they will. We'll do everything in our power to help. And for now, Philippe Carrillo, I want to thank you for being my guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Filmmaker Philippe Carrillo. 
We have the trailer for Fukushima Disaster, the hidden side of the story, posted on our website. There are also links to where you can access the film, as well as the link to the page with his raw footage of expert interviews with Dr. Helen Caldicott, Arnie Gunderson, Maggie Gunderson, and others. One request that Philippe has made is that we go to his film's listing on the imdb.com, internetmoviedatabase.com, and write a positive review. Even a single review raises his ratings and his visibility. Mine alone raised it a full tenth of a point. This will go a long way to making his film visible, hopefully to those who've been hypnotized by the pro-nuclear, wrong-headed drumbeat behind Oliver Stone's pro-nuclear lie fest. Note that you will need to sign up for a free IMDb account to be able to post your review. The group Don't Contaminate the Oceans Anymore Citizens Council has organized a webinar entitled Don't Nuke the Pacific, Why We Should Not Dump Radioactive Wastewater. They're calling it a study session, and the speakers are Dr. Arjun Mukherjani, who is president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research, a private research institute in the United States. Dr. Makajani holds a Ph.D. in engineering with a specialization in nuclear fission from the University of California at Berkeley. The other speaker will be Dr. Hikaru Amani, whose Ph.D. is in engineering. He is former principal researcher, head of environmental research laboratory for the Japan Atomic Energy Agency. It will take place in the United States and Canada on Saturday, May 6, 2023, at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific Time, which in Japan becomes Sunday, May 7, 2023, from 9 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. You need to register, and we will have a link up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 619. For another juicy webinar, Beyond Nuclear is holding teach-ins on tritium. The first, Tritium Don't Dump It, Tritium in the U.S. Nuclear Power Sector, will take place on Tuesday, May 16, from 2 to 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. It features Dr. Ian Fairley providing an overview of tritium and the harm it causes, Mary Lampert of Pilgrim Watch describing opposition to tritium dumping by Holtec into Cape Cod Bay from the closed Pilgrim, Massachusetts, nuclear power plant, and lawyer Michelle Lee of the Council on Intelligent Energy and Conservation Policy, who will discuss the similar threat of tritium dumping by Holtec from the Indian Point nuclear power plant in New York into the Hudson River. We will also have a link up for registration for that seminar. We want to acknowledge that last November, a declaration of public conscience by the G20 leaders meeting in Bali surprised the world by agreeing that, quote, the threat of use or use of nuclear weapons is inadmissible, and included this agreement in the G20 Bali Leaders Declaration. That meeting included leaders or foreign ministers from China, France, India, Russia, the UK, and the United States. The agreement rose from concerns on all sides about the potential for the Russia-Ukraine war to escalate into a nuclear war between Russia and the West and it indicates a possible breakthrough in consolidating a general norm against the use of nuclear weapons, which are now illegal according to the United Nations, 
and international law. The question is whether or not this statement will be reaffirmed at the coming G7 summit in Hiroshima, May 19 to 21st, and the G20 summit in Delhi, September 9 through 10, and whether or not it will have any real impact on policies and practices of the nuclear armed states, including the nuclear first use options. And a jaw-dropping thanks to the International Uranium Film Festival, which issued a press release that included me in the headline. They also labeled me as their special guest and said that I would be introducing new atomic films from the United States, specifically Heidi Hunter's multiple award-winning film, Radioactive, The Women of Three Mile Island. And a reminder that if you would like an easy way to help the show, go to NuclearHotSeat.com and sign up to get each week's episode in the yellow opt-in box. That's going to build our algorithm when it comes to Google. Also, Every time you see a post from the show with the show, if you click on it for like or love or wow or crying or whatever other emoji appeals to you, and if you make a comment, no matter how short, it can be an add a girl, that's all you need, that will also go far towards building our presence online and the way that the Google and Facebook algorithms pick up the show. A big help for very little effort, and we appreciate anything you can do. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023. Our thanks to Linda Pence Gunter for the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. As I said, if you want to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's easy. You can sign up for it on your favorite podcast channel or cut to the chase at NuclearHotSeat.com. Look for the yellow box, put in your first name and email address, And every week you'll get an email from us as soon as the show posts with a link and a brief description of some of the show's content. We don't want you to miss a single episode. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2023, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as you cite the program, the website, kick in the names of the guests you use, and me if you've got time and space for it. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that lack of information on what radiation is, what it does, and how long it remains deadly to human life is the nuclear industry's favorite public blind spot. Because if you don't understand the dangers, you won't be motivated to take action. The cure for that blind spot is to educate yourselves and then take action. There you have it. You have just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.